After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Um, Rowan's going to come and speak, but uh, before he does that, uh, why don't you join me in prayer? So please bow your heads. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. Um, we thank you for public meetings and that we can continue to meet on campus um, without fear. Um, Lord, we pray that uh, as we approach your word now, you would take away uh, distractions from our hearts, um, help Rowan to speak truthfully from your word, um, help us, Lord, to think about how this word um, applies to our lives and how we can uh, continue to proclaim Jesus as Lord through this. Amen. Amen. Good to see you. I'm, my name's Rowan Kemp. I lead the staff team that work alongside the EU here on campus. Glad you could come along to this EU public meeting. I've got a little question I'd like you to talk with the person next to you about. The question is this, I'll, I'll explain the question though. The question is, what's your favourite piece of disruptive technology? Now, hand up if you're familiar with the phrase disruptive technology. About five people, okay. So the idea of disruptive technology is a technological innovation that has radically reshaped how you do life in some area. So it's not just sort of a little bit of an improvement, just not, not just you know, a new model of something, but a radical disruption to how things have been done now because of this new, innovative, radically disruptive technology. So talk to the person next to you. What's your favourite piece of technology? Have a little chat. to the question, your favourite piece of disruptive technology is this, your mobile phone. You can't live without it, really. I'm so old, can you believe, that I went through my whole university time, and I was a student here for, 
well, nine years in the end, I went through my whole university time and didn't own a mobile phone. It's, I had to use pay phones. Now, hand up if you've never ever used a pay phone. There's a, what? see, yes, I know, it's amazing, isn't it? There's a whole generation now that have never even used a pay phone. Anyway, you may not um, have ever thought of Jesus as disruptive. I want to talk to you about Jesus. He's not disruptive. Technology was incredibly disruptive in the same sort of sense, meaning that he has radically reshaped how we do life. I don't just mean his impact on culture or on history. I'm talking about he radically reshapes how we engage with the one true living God, our understanding, our knowledge of the one true living God. Jesus has been truly disruptive. And that's what we're going to explore a little bit today by thinking about the particular incident that Issa read out for us, which was Jesus there in the temple courts. Now, I've got a picture that someone's got here of it. Can you see that okay? I might turn down the lights a little bit so you can see it a bit better. I want you to try to imagine this particular scene. So we're going to sort of do a little bit of a thought experiment, just sort of an imaginative play. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a Jew living 2,000 years ago. And because it is Passover time, which is one of the important Jewish festivals, you are heading up to Jerusalem. Passover festival celebrated the... Uh, the great rescue that the one true living God had won for the Israelite nation by bringing them out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And so every year they celebrated Passover festival to remember that great exodus, that great salvation moment. And lots of Jews would go on a pilgrimage each year up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. You as a Jew are heading up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. The part of the Passover festival would be that you, as a Jew, would, would offer some sacrifices. Maybe you might offer one of your lambs or uh, a, a cow from your herd of cattle. Or if you couldn't afford sort of cattle or sheep, then maybe you would offer some doves. But the problem was you lived a long way away from Jerusalem, so you don't want to be carrying your sheep or you know, driving your sheep all the way up to Jerusalem. That's just going to be too far. So what you're going to do is you're going to just go to Jerusalem yourself. And when you get to Jerusalem, you'll just buy a sheep or a cow or some doves, right? Other thing you've got to do as a Jew when you get to, the, to Jerusalem is you've got to pay your annual temple tax. But the temple will only accept it in a certain sort of coinage. And because you live a long way away, you operate day to day with a different sort of coinage. So that's not going to work. So when you get there, you're going to need to change your money as well. But don't worry, because all the people there who are running the temple, they've set up a great system, because there in the outer court of the temple are a whole bunch of people selling cows and selling sheep and selling doves, and there's people there who are happy to exchange your money, got the money changes there, and so they're all there in the outer court. I mean, it's a little bit of a problem. The outer court was meant to be a court where you worship God, the one true living God. So it's meant to be a court where you sort of worship, where you pray, where you sing, and where you hear God's word from the priests. But when you turn up there in the temple in Jerusalem, it's full, as you can see in the picture, it's full of people 
buying and selling and haggling over the different animals and over the changing of money and this is what's going on in the outer court. And you're participating in this because you need to change your money and you need to get some animals. So let's just imagine what that would be like for a moment. I want you to help me with this. I want you to be something in that scene. You can choose to be a cow if you like. I was on the farm on the weekend and the cows go like that. And the sheep, of course, and the doves, I don't, what, is that what they do? I don't know what doves do, but whatever doves do. Or maybe you're haggling over money. And so you're haggling over the price of the money. Everyone has to make, you're doing something there. Ready? You ready? We're all going to do it together. Yes, wait for it. Is that you, Ben? No, here we go. You ready? Go. Thank you. It, that would have been the sound. As you were there in the outer court, coming to worship the one true living God, ready to sing his praises, pray to him, hear his word from the priests, that would have been the noise going on. And as you're there, and it's all sort of going, suddenly in the corner, there's a ruckus erupting. There's a guy there who's made a whip out of some cords that he's found. He's got made himself a whip and he's, he's going over to where the animals are and he starts cracking the whip at the animals. He, he's not the owner of the animals. The owner of the animals there are, what are you doing? And he's driving these animals out of the temple courts. And the owners are getting upset and people are saying, well, you've got a whip, what's he doing? And, they, and, and then as he goes, he comes up to the money changers and he comes up to where all their coins are and he just sweeps them off the table. And for good measure, he tips over the table as he goes past. Well, they're not very happy about that. And then he yells out at the dove, the dove sellers and he says, get out of here. You have turned my father's house into a marketplace. Disruptive Jesus. What do you think Jesus, as he did that, was trying to achieve? Have a chat with the person next to you. What do you reckon Jesus was trying to achieve with such a disruptive act? on it, I think this is, we'd be right to say, we'd be right to say that one of the things Jesus is trying to do, given what he said to the dove sellers, which was, get out of here, you're turning my father's house into a marketplace, he's trying to sort of restore proper worship in the temple. 
by driving out all of those who are taking up the outer court. So yes, he's trying to restore proper worship, probably, in the temple. And he's certainly being disruptive as he goes about it. But notice then what happens. The Jewish authorities are not terribly happy. If you've got your Bible, that'd be really useful. Can you open up to John chapter 2? Let's have a bit of a look at this, what happens. John chapter 2, or maybe look on with the person next to you, or call it up on your phone. Verse 18, you can see he's challenged by the Jews of chapter 2. And they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, so, hand up if you were here last week. Hand up if you were here last week. Right, few. Now, remember last week, I, taught, I said one of our goals here in the EU public meeting is to help you become an attentive reader of the Bible. Now, as you read that chapter 2, verse 18, and they say, what sign? You should be going, because that word sign is a key word in John's story about Jesus. If you've got your Bible there, have a look back at chapter 2, verse 11. The incident we looked at last week where Jesus turned water into wine, John finished that account with this sentence in verse 11. This, the first of his signs... Jesus performed a cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So we know that when Jesus does a sign, a sign is meant to reveal his glory. And we saw last week, Jesus' glory is ultimately his identity, who he really is. He was giving them a little window into his true glorious identity by what he did when he turned water into wine. Now the Jews are saying, what sign are you going to give us? Well, I wonder what sign Jesus is going to give them to show who he is, to show what authority he has to take about this disruptive action. Well, have a look at what he says. Jesus' answer there in verse 19 is, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now just think about that for a moment. We're all standing there in the temple, right? Jesus has been challenged by the Jews and they say, what sign are you going to give us? And then Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. I mean, imagine if I came to you and said, or Jesus was here, say, and we'd sort of challenged him to a sign and he says, destroy the chemistry building and I will raise it in three days. You're probably not going to take him up on the offer, are you? Say, so, okay, well, let's get about destroying the chemistry building, <laughs> destroy the whole thing, so that then you... See, he's, uh, I mean, you might think Jesus, frankly, was just a really, really, really good poker player at this point. <laughs> Except that there's lots of reasons why that wouldn't be the case. But is this, is this just a very, very clever bluff? Just say, okay, here's a sign for you. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it in three days. Yeah, we're not going to do that, because what do they say the very next sentence? They say... This temple has taken us 46 years to build. You're going to sort of rebuild it in three days? Like if I said to you, I've discovered this fantastic way to make a lot of money. You can make a stack load of money, like a huge amount of money. You've just got to give me $1,000. Don't you want to make a lot of money? Give me $1,000. Yeah, no, I'm not. Oh, I don't think I'm going to try that one. So is Jesus just giving a really clever bluff here? Here's a sign for you. Destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. They don't choose to take him up on the offer. Except that John, the eyewitness who's there, what does he comment on it? He then says, John says, verse 21, 22, 
that Jesus was speaking about his body. He wasn't speaking about the physical temple. He was speaking about his body. Jesus saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. You want a sign of who I am? By what authority I've been so disruptive of my glory? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. That will be the sign to you. There's a great irony here, isn't there? They misunderstood what Jesus said, thinking he was referring to the the, uh, physical temple and they refused to take him up on it. And yet ultimately they did take him up on it because they killed him. And spoiler alert, you jump forward to the end of the story and guess what? He's raised back to physical life again. So here's Jesus with his sign, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. So certainly Jesus is here being quite disruptive. However, I want to suggest to you that if you understand this story in the bigger picture of what God reveals in the whole of the Bible, you will perceive how even more disruptive he is being here. And that's what I want to try to help you understand next. To help you understand this, just how disruptive Jesus is being, I need to tell you a bigger story. A really big story. I don't mean long, I just mean it's big in its scope. The big story I think we need to understand in order to understand Jesus standing here in the temple is the story of the one true living God who chooses to reveal himself. If you read through the Old Testament in the Christian Bible, you'll see that the one true living God chooses kindly to make himself known to a particular people. He makes himself known to the Old Testament nation of Israel. And by revealing himself to Israel, he then makes himself known to all the nations of the world. And this is a big story that you can trace right throughout the whole of the Bible. The high point of God revealing himself to the Old Testament nation of Israel is probably this moment here in this picture. When God revealed himself to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. Now this was just after God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, the Exodus, which we talked about a moment ago, celebrated in the Passover. When God rescued them out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And there on top of Mount Sinai, the one true living God revealed himself to Moses, who then relayed that to Israel, and then through that to all of us. This is probably one of the, one of the greatest moments in all of the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bible there, let's flick it open. Exodus chapters 33 and 34. This is just one of those passages you, you should be familiar with if you are somebody who wants to be familiar with the Bible. Exodus chapter 33 and 34. As I say, one of the great high points of the whole of the Old Testament. I want to jump in in chapter 33, verse 18. Let me read out some of this for you. Then Moses said, Moses is there talking to the Lord. Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face 
for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. A cleft is like just an opening, like a little sort of hidey hole there in the rock. I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Reference here is to uh, previously the Lord had given Moses two tablets which had the Ten Commandments on them. But when Moses had come down from the mountain, the Israelites had decided they were going to start worshipping idols made of gold, calves made of gold, instead of worshipping the one true living God. And Moses had smashed the Ten Commandments as a symbol saying the relationship God has just established, you've stuffed up, you've broken it, and so he smashed. Now the Lord is kindly saying, cut out two new ones and we'll write on them again, the Ten Commandments. He's restarting his relationship with the Israelites at this particular point. Verse 2. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then this, the next couple of verses are just incredible to imagine. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. It's an incredible scene to just imagine. Imagine being there with Moses. I mean, he was told not to bring anyone else. But imagine you sort of snuck along. And just there with Moses. There comes the Lord in a cloud and stands next to him. How did Moses start this whole interaction? He asked to see his glory. Some key words I want you to hold in your mind. You only got to hold in your mind for about 10 minutes. So just use all those study skills, right, to cram in these words for the next 10 minutes. Then you can forget them. Well, maybe not. Glory. Moses asked to see God's glory. The Lord's response is, you can see my back, and if you want to ask questions about this a bit later, there's backs and hands and faces here of God. What's all that about? You, you have to ask me later. He wants to see me. The Lord says, no one can see me and live. No one can see my face. Associated with this whole moment is the giving of the law there in the, in the Ten Commandments, which is meant to be a revelation of what God is like and how to live as his people in the world. And what God does, when he comes down, he proclaims his name, the Lord, or Yahweh. But that's not all he says. 
But see, in the Old Testament, when you gave your name to somebody, your name was meant to mean something. It had a meaning attached to it. Hand up if you know what your name means. Hand up if you, keep your hand up if you're happy to share it with us. What your name is and what it means. Yeah? Isabella meaning consecrated to God. Nice. Benjamin means son of my right hand. That's a bit weird. <laughs> Benjamin, son of my right hand. It's very specific. It's very specific. <laughs> Not my left foot. No, okay. Yeah, okay. Who else? One more. Yeah. Rebecca meaning stubborn. Do you notice how that's meant to reveal something of one's character? I'm just saying that's the theory, right? Yeah, one more. God is... Samuel, God has heard. I mean, a lot of your names carry much more meaning than mine. Rowan means little red berries. (laughs) Which is not a particularly profound insight, I don't believe, into my character. Um, When the Lord reveals himself... He gives his name, but then he sort of explains what his name means. And he says, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I love the word abounding. I feel like every time you say it, you need to sort of have actions. And the right actions would not be abounding. That would not be right. Abounding. That's... It's abounding. Yeah? The Lord, when he reveals himself, is abounding in love and faithfulness. When the Lord reveals his name to Moses, he reveals his character. And it's wonderful. It's glorious. It's good. This is who he is. And associated with that as well is he re-establishes his covenant, he re-establishes a relationship with the people he's revealing himself to. And not even more so, as you go on, he then makes provision for his presence to stay with his people. And he does it by giving them instructions in the next couple of chapters in Exodus for building of the tabernacle, which was like this mobile tent that they carried with them through the desert where the Lord symbolically dwelt amongst his people. This is this great high point of God revealing himself to his chosen people there in the Old Testament, Exodus 33 and 34. Now, just a little sort of side note here, just notice, as we're thinking about this, what what does God reveal? We've seen he reveals his character, what he is like. Why does he reveal it? Because he wants to establish a restored relationship with his creatures. He takes his creatures, who basically say to God constantly, like we all do, get stuff, God. He wants to establish a revealed, uh, uh, sorry, a restored relationship with them. That's why he reveals what he is like to them. And how they just respond? Well, how did Moses respond? He bowed down and worshipped. You respond by accepting, trusting it believing it, having faith, and responding with worship and obedience. Now these days, uh, people, I think, 
Well, my theory is we live such comfortable lives, and I'm not saying everything in our life is easy or good. I know that is not true. But I guess if we compared our lives to a lot of people's lives in the world, you would probably end up concluding we have fairly comfortable, easy lives compared to many. Tragically, that comes from the one true living God, but we don't want to give him any thanks for that. We want to cut him out of the picture, even though that blessed sort of existence that we have is from him. So most people, it seems to me today, a lot of people just don't think they have any need to know God. Because life's so easy, life's so good. Why would I need to know God? I think you just got to stop and think about it for a moment. If the one true living God who created the entire universe and made you, if he wants a relationship with you as the God who is full of love and faithfulness, don't you think being in a relationship with that God might be just a little bit good in your life? Might it not be actually fantastic to be in a living relationship with that amazing, loving God? Knowing God, the one true living God, is amazing. Jim Packer, he's a Christian theologian, he wrote this. He said, knowing God, is there any greater theme to study? Is there any nobler goal to aim at? Is there any greater good to enjoy? Is there any deeper longing in the human heart than the desire to know God? Surely not. And Christianity's good news is that it can happen. That is why the Christian message is a word for the world. To know God is the biggest and best of the blessings promised in the gospel. Such is the glorious reality of knowing God. For this we were made and for this we have been redeemed. This is the true object of the world's longing and the sum and substance of the Christian's ambition and hope. It is our highest dignity, our proper purpose, and our final fulfilment to know God. There is, I repeat, no more vital subject that any of us can ever explore than knowing God, according to the Scriptures. So if you imagine for a moment that you had snuck up there with Moses, right? under his coattail somehow, and down came the Lord in a cloud and stood next to him. If, that, if you'd actually been there, that would be pretty awesome, right? If that had actually happened, would you still be talking about it? Probably. You'd probably be thinking, that was fantastic, let me tell you about this moment that happened. Wouldn't it be great if that could have been us? Well, here's the thing. The thing is, you have a better understanding of the one true living God than Moses ever did. You do. You have a more profound 
revelation from God about what he was like than Moses ever had access to. Because you have heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's come back into John's Gospel. I want to follow this story of God revealing of himself. I'm going to follow it now back into John's Gospel. Now, last week I was saying that the first 18 verses or so out of John's Gospel, I just skipped over. I skipped over them, I said, because you were just not ready for it. And I've been reflecting on it during the week, and you're still not ready for it. But what I'm going to do is to give you just a little bit of it, because you might handle just a little bit. And so verses 14 to 18, the end of it, we're just going to look at that. And in a moment, I'm going to put it on the screen here. Now, what I want you to do is just as we read this, this is, remember, John's overview, his summary, his conclusions about who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing. This is his overview that he's put right up the front. I want you to listen out for all those key words we identified from Exodus 33 and 34. Because my theory is that John has Exodus 33 and 34 in his mind as he writes about Jesus. He connects these ideas. So as we read through, you look for these key, key words. Here we go. John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Now, tabernacle, that's a weird word. Have you ever used that as a verb ever in your life? Probably not. You probably never will. And in fact, your English Bible translations probably haven't rendered it as tabernacled because they think that's too weird a word. So they've obscured it by putting some other English word there. But guess what that does? That obscures the deliberate connection that John is trying to make back to Exodus 33 and 34. As soon as you read that he tabernacled amongst us, you're meant to think, the tabernacle? The tabernacle where God's presence came and dwelt amongst his people? The Word, who was God, became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Oh, right. That's better than the old tabernacle. Now you've got the Word become flesh amongst us tabernacle amongst us. We have seen his glory. What did Moses ask to see? God's glory. We And now John said, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only full of grace and truth. Why am I doing that? Because that idea of full is very similar to the abounding word. Abounding in love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. upon grace. Sort of means grace on top of grace. Grace replacing grace. Grace superseding grace. What does he mean? Well, he explains it in the next sentence, which starts with a four. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's setting up a contrast. He's saying, when the one true living God revealed himself there at Mount Sinai, yes, that was a grace. That was kindness from God, revealing himself. And, he, and through Moses came the law, all an expression of God's grace. But now we've received grace upon grace, grace uh, surpassing grace, the grace and truth that have come through Jesus Christ. And then he keeps going, thinking about what happened back at Mount Sinai. 
No one has ever seen God. Even Moses only got to see his back. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So if I could sort of summarise the two ideas I think that John's got there, I would summarise it as this. He says, we now have in Jesus a greater grace with a greater revelation. We have grace upon grace, grace, a greater grace now in Jesus, giving us an even greater revelation. So take us then back to where we started. John chapter 2. Here is disruptive Jesus. Yes, he disrupts the sort of procedure that was going on there in the temple courts, but actually Jesus being way more disruptive than you might expect. What's he doing when he says, destroy this temple? He's standing in the middle of the physical temple, which was just a bricks and mortar version of the old tabernacle. And Jesus is standing in the middle of the temple tabernacle and saying, destroy this temple. It's the grace upon grace, the grace replacing the grace. There is now a new temple in town. Jesus is saying, I am the new temple. And this, in John's Gospel, there is a whole replacement theme. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new Passover lamb. Jesus is the new way to be purified, uh, replacing the old Jewish purification jars. Jesus is the new Jewish sort of festivals, replacing the old ones that came through the law. There's this whole replacement theme of grace upon grace in John's Gospel, which, is, which leads you to a greater revelation, that you know God ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus says this himself a little bit later on, when he's talking to Philip, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. I think what Philip's asking for here is Philip's asking for somehow Jesus to sort of part the heavens so that they could see the father. Show us the father, Jesus, that'll be enough. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? If you want to know what the one true living God is like, you go to Jesus. i finish with this. I told you that on the weekend I was down on the farm with an old EU friend of mine who lives down on the farm outside of Canberra and I was down there and, you know, it was beautiful. Rolling hills, animals, beautiful experience of creation, spectacularly clear night on Saturday, last Saturday night down there and there he and I were, two old men, peering through a telescope, trying to look at the stars and just, you know, it, it was awesome. Is that how you know God? communing with nature. Is that how you get to know God? You can know some things about God that way, but not a lot. Maybe where you need to go is here, the chemistry lab. Do you get to know God by doing your experiments? Or maybe we should go to the philosophy room in the main quad. Is that where we'll get to know God? Or maybe we need to go and sit with 
with the, the terrible suffering poor in the world? Is that how you get to know God? God in the person of Jesus. Uh, Don Carson, and I'll finish with this quote, says this. Do you want to know what the character of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the holiness of God is like? Study Jesus. In fact, I respect his great, awesome, big mind that God's given him, but I want to change the words a bit. I, study Jesus sounds a little bit too cognitive. I know what he's saying. Pay attention to, get to... I want to say, get to know Jesus. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is like? Get to know Jesus. Do you want to know what the forgiveness of God is like? Get to know Jesus. Do you want to know what the glory of God is like? Get to know Jesus all the way to that wretched cross. Get to know Jesus. That's how you will know the one true living God who made you and loved you and has saved you in this Jesus. Please join with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it we can know you and that um, we do not have to hide from you now, but we can see you through Jesus. Father, we thank you that um, through Jesus' life and his death on the cross and his resurrection that um, we have a new grace that has replaced the old grace. Um, we thank you that we have a perfect covenant and perfect relationship with you now um, and that that is um, something that we have that um, people in the past did not have. Um, Father, we pray that as we um, go about this week, um, help us, Lord, to um, desire earnestly to know you, to study you, um, so that we might um, know your character, know your wrath, know your forgiveness. Our Father, we pray that um, as we respond to your word, um, Lord, help us not to um, yeah, take for granted or uh, forget um, how um, abounding your love is for us, um, but help us, Lord, to worship you each day. Help us to proclaim your name on campus that um, more, more, more and more people uh, would know you as their Lord uh, and would know you and your um, saving grace um, and the new grace that we have and how exciting that is. Uh, we pray this in the name of your Son and for his glory. Amen.